The following program is a presentation of the Wartime Podcast Network in association with PCN. I hope you enjoy the program, and remember, history is best when it's shared. After a great victory over Union forces in June 1863, Robert E. Lee marches his army to Pennsylvania. The advancing Confederates clash with General Meade's Union Army at Gettysburg, beginning the most famous battle of the Civil War. Explore our nation's past and the Gettysburg battlefield with the Gettysburg Collection. Become a member to stream hundreds of Gettysburg videos online, on the app, and on Roku. Learn more at GettysburgCollection.com. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Battlefield, Pennsylvania. Today we're on location in Carlisle, Cumberland County. In July of 1863, while Union and Confederate forces tangled at Gettysburg, General Jeb Stuart launched an attack here at Carlisle. After the defeat at Gettysburg, many placed the blame for the loss squarely on Stuart's shoulders, and the events that occurred here were considered a major component of that assault. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Joining me today to discuss the attack on Carlisle is author J.D. Petruzzi and Dr. Richard Summers, distinguished fellow at the U.S. Army War College. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. Thank you, Brady. Thank you. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, at the risk of being the most hated historian in America, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually an insurance broker. Um, my interest in history probably goes back to when I was about eight years old, kind of, you know, the typical boy thing, discovering the cowboys and Indians and getting into that. But then all of a sudden I discovered that a lot of these uh, U.S. Army fellows that were tangling with these Indians back after the Civil War in the 1870s, 80s, and 90s, uh, fought in this something called the American Civil War. And suddenly when I discovered um, these men and what they did and the fact that we had this four-year war that literally tore this country apart and pitted family against family, I was hooked and have been studying it ever since. And, um, but really, because of the Cowboys and Indians, I think that germinated that seed that got me first really interested in the cavalry. So that's one of the things that carries over into my Civil War studies. Anything to do with the cavalry is, is what I enjoy. Um, I, I really enjoy studying it. And this particular topic, and when we're looking at events surrounding the Gettysburg campaign, because we're talking about you know a cavalry action here um, against the town by Jeb Stewart and his his Southern horsemen, um, right up my alley, and what I enjoy. So you know, for the past decades, I just devour any information, anything that I can get on the cavalry of both sides. And really, in my books, what I try to do, I guess, is bring the importance of what the cavalry did, which doesn't get talked about as much the overall importance to all these different battles and campaigns. Um, and here I am still uh, 40 years later, and just like a kid, just as interested and engrossed in it and studying it as much as I ever have. And a third time guest on Battlefield Pennsylvania. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And I appreciate it. Dr. Summers? I was born and raised in suburban Chicagoland. I did my undergraduate work at Carleton College, earned my doctor at Rice University under the great Civil War professor Frank Vandiver. 
1970, I became a charter member of the Army Military History Institute, now part of the Army Heritage and Education Center here at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania. I've served there as an assistant director, the Johnson Professor of Military History, the senior historian of the Army Heritage Center. Uh, people tell me I retired in 2014, but I still teach a course in the Army War College. And two years ago, the War College uh, did me the, the great honor of designating me a distinguished fellow of that institution. JD, I've just discovered you and I have uh, something else uh, in common. I too was uh, eight years old uh, when I began uh, my interest in military history, but for me it was uh, ancient and medieval military history. Uh, in eighth grade, I had the great good fortune to read uh, Bruce Catton's three volumes on the Army of the Potomac. He won me over to the Civil War, and I've been there ever since. Uh, my original scholarship is on the uh, Siege of Petersburg. Uh, my book, Richmond Redeemed, the Siege at, at Petersburg, is, is considered a pioneering work in modern studies of the siege. But the whole Civil War interests me from the eastern shore of Virginia to Arizona, from South Kansas to South Florida, and I'm currently working on a book on generalship in the Civil War. And, and I would say, too, probably Dr. Summers has the uh, distinction of being mentioned in probably every book that came out of the Civil War that he hasn't written. And, and on this particular subject, um, you know, the Siege of Carlisle and in the book that Eric Wittenberg and I co-authored, Plenty of Blame to Go Around, which talks about Jeb Stewart's ride uh, to, uh, to Pennsylvania during the Gettysburg campaign, uh, Dr. Summers and his staff have been, you know, probably the, the biggest help uh, to us and other historians on every particular subject, you know, that they write on. The, the Army War College, both their research library and the prints and photographs division, you know, which we used heavily. Um, and he's, he's been there such a long time and serving so well that I know everybody knows Dr. Summers and has been helped either, you know, in some small part or in a great uh, effort for, you know, by him and his staff to get us what we need and get us the information. Um, and he's probably got the grandest beard of all. <laughs> and and, and th thank you, uh, J.D. Uh, my, my greatest pleasure over this last nearly half century now has been to help people like you and Eric Wittenberg and so many authors and researchers and scholars and the American people who've come to our country, to our holdings here in Carlisle from all over the United States and all over the world. Just to emphasize that the Army Heritage and Education Center is a public facility. One needs not be an officer assigned to the Army War College to be eligible to use it. And certainly you and Eric Wittenberg have made very good use of our holdings over the years. Thank you. So by 1863, uh, what brings the war into Pennsylvania? Hmm. Yeah, good question. Um, at this point, uh, when we get into the month of June 1863, Robert E. Lee has had quite a number of successes um, against overwhelming odds against the federal army. And Robert E. Lee has seen a succession of federal commanders come and go. Uh, in fact, just a few days before the great battle breaks out at Gettysburg, we have another brand new federal commander, George Meade, um, who is appointed to take over after Joseph Hooker is 
terminated slash resigned. Um, Robert E. Lee, as he tried to do the year before, sees an opportunity to get the war out of war-torn Virginia and all the desolation that's happened there in Virginia, to take it north into Maryland and Pennsylvania, uh, perhaps press against places in Pennsylvania such as Harrisburg, Carlisle, York, um, even Baltimore, Maryland, all of these places so important to, I guess, the psychological feelings that the northern people have about the war, that if he can press against that and perhaps um, threaten these different areas, he can get Lincoln uh, and some of the politicians, the northern politicians, to press for peace. So he begins to bring his army into Pennsylvania. Uh, the, the first infantry that comes into Pennsylvania is that corps of Richard Yule, and he is fronted by a crack um, cavalry brigade under Brigadier General Albert Jenkins. And we're going to talk a bit about Jenkins, you know, in this area. He, he does quite a bit um, in Carlisle and places like Sporting Hill and so forth. Um, by bringing the war into Pennsylvania, like I said, Lee can kind of get the, the responsibility and all the desolation and the destruction off of Virginia, but it accomplished both those military and political aims to try to bring an end to the war and literally win it. Um, he hopes when he's in Pennsylvania to try to find pieces of the federal army that he can engage and perhaps defeat piecemeal or in peace. Um, and as those troops start coming toward Harrisburg, um, Carlisle, York, and so forth, it really just scares the bejesus out of everybody, all the Pennsylvania residents that are here. So they start sending all their supplies, all their horses across the Susquehanna uh, to get everything you know, out of this area. So he, Robert E. Lee is definitely, definitely accomplishing his aims, but he's gonna find out that things get off the track pretty quick, and that's due to a number of factors. And may I add a couple of additional dimensions to what you stated so well, J.D. In the overall grand strategic context of the whole war effort, things have gone very well for the Confederates in the Eastern Theater. Uh, the Middle Tennessee Theater has remained uh, static uh, since late December, the beginning of January. But along the Mississippi River, things are looking bad for the Confederates. Uh, Grant has besieged Vicksburg. General Banks is besieging Port Hudson. So the Confederates have to do something about that. And there are three ways that strategists can try to solve a military problem. They can take it on directly, send troops to Mississippi to try to raise the siege of Vicksburg, defeat General Grant, or to open up a new front in Middle Tennessee, which had worked very well for them when they put their emphasis there in the late summer and early autumn of 1862. They'd been unable to capitalize on it, but nevertheless, it had appeared promising then. But what they decided on was the third option, which is to reinforce success. In the Eastern Theater, they had the best army under the best Confederate general, Robert E. Lee, so they were going to rely on him to carry the war into the North and perhaps cause uh, the Federals to have to send troops that otherwise might have gone to the siege of Vicksburg uh, into the Eastern Theater to try to oppose Lee. And the invasion of Pennsylvania, in addition, would have all of the benefits that uh, 
you, J.D., have described so well. There's one other dimension that's been identified by a former colleague and longtime friend of mine at the Army uh, Military History Institute, uh, the late Mr. James Cagle, in his book, North with Lee and Jackson. Uh, ever since 1861, Stonewall Jackson and now Lee had been targeting the coal fields of Pennsylvania, especially the anthracite fields on which the great steam frigates of the United States Navy depended. They could not burn soft coal. They could not burn wood. They could only burn hard coal, anthracite. If the Confederates could penetrate into the anthracite region, they could potentially disrupt the coal supply for the United States Navy. So there are all of these dimensions grand strategic in the whole war effort, strategic in the Eastern Theater, operational here within Pennsylvania itself that carry the, the Confederates into Cumberland County and the Commonwealth in the late spring and early summer of 1863. Many logistic considerations, yeah, as, as Dr. Summer said. And, and it, it kind of leads us into here, you know, when we discuss um, Robert E. Lee's decisions and I guess the framework within uh, the way that he proceeds north into Pennsylvania. Um, and this goes directly to what we're talking about here today. Uh, as early possibly as June 18th, 1863, during what we know as the Valley Fighting, when Jeb Stewart uh, was fighting in the mountain passes uh, down in the Valley in Virginia, trying to mask Robert E. Lee's movements north and getting into a whole lot of scraps, thousands of casualties. Uh, you know, and this is just a couple of weeks before Gettysburg. But possibly as early as June 18th, 1863, Jeb Stewart proposed the idea of doing almost like a second ride around McClellan like he was so successful um, earlier, but of course this is going to be a ride around Hooker's army at the time because Hooker was the commander uh, at this period we're talking about. Um, we get this from Henry McClellan, who's one of Jeb Stewart's staff officers, who recorded that Jeb Stewart, as early as the 18th, wanted to do that. So over the next few days, he proposes that to Robert E. Lee, who then approves the idea of Jeb Stewart coming into Pennsylvania separately, sort of paving the way and staying on uh, Corps Commander Yule's right across the mountains. Uh, Yule is supposed to be going towards York, Pennsylvania. And Jeb Stewart is tasked with a multitude of responsibilities. And this is back in 1863 when we don't have cell phones and aerial reconnaissance and whatever. Jeb Stewart and his Confederate cavalry are supposed to be watching for Yule, meet up with him in Pennsylvania, all the while doing all the damage that he can in Pennsylvania and collecting as much supplies. And, and as you said, you know, threatening uh, logistically the uh, military material that the North can work with. Quite a big order 150 years ago to do this. And this is one of the major things that leads us into what happens with Jeb Stewart on his 10 day ride, all the battles and everything that he gets into. And the fact that it takes him 10 days to go approximately 200 miles, which is a pretty good jaunt, but he's unable to hook up with Robert E. Lee until the Battle of Gettysburg is already underway on July the 2nd. And, and this is really why we're here and why we're talking about this, because of what happens to Jeb Stewart and the utter frustration that he feels in trying to accomplish all his different goals getting into Pennsylvania. Now, Carlisle is not a normal town or city in Pennsylvania now or in 1863. Dr. Summers, uh, what was Carlisle like in the, in the 19th century? Well, 
to, to understand Carlyle's significance, we might even go back into the, the 18th century, uh, when the Scots-Irish settlers uh, first crossed the Susquehanna River into the Cumberland Valley, they established their Presbyterian churches. And around those churches grew up all of the historic towns of the Cumberland Valley. Uh, the first two were established uh, right here in Carlisle, uh, just outside the present borough limits, and also at Silver Spring in Mechanicsburg. And the towns of Carlisle and Mechanicsburg grew up near those two churches. Carlisle was really the bulwark of British power for protecting the settled portions of the Pennsylvania colony uh, against the devastation of the Indians in the aftermath of Braddock's defeat in 1755 and again during the Pontiac War in 1763. Indeed, the British Army established its own installation here in 1757. The settlers had their own fort right downtown immediately west of where we are today, Fort Lowther. But the British established the fort which today is Carlisle Barracks and from there General John Forbes uh, projected his expedition westward in 1758 that occupied uh, Fort Duquesne and again from here in 1763 Henri Bouquet uh, would lead the expedition that would defeat uh, the Indians at Bushy Run in the Pontiac War. Uh, by the time of the Revolutionary War, the uh, position of Carlisle militarily was much different, not as a frontier uh, power base, but as a logistical center safely in the interior. It was the principal quartermaster and ordnance facility, especially ordnance, for the Continental Army on the rationale that if the British ever penetrated this deeply, the Revolution would have collapsed. And it performed a very important um, service in that regard. Uh, the town was very patriotic, signers of the Declaration of Independence, uh, half a dozen generals in the Revolutionary War hailed from Carlisle. Uh, by the uh, mid-19th century, uh, Cumberland County no longer encompassed all of western Pennsylvania, and the town was not as important militarily, but it remained the seat of Cumberland County. And in the military sense, uh, Carlisle Barracks continued to serve in an important capacity. In 1838, it became the uh, so-called cavalry school, the headquarters of the mounted recruiting service for the U.S. Army, and was continuing to operate in that capacity. Uh, at the outbreak of the Civil War and at the time of the Battle of Carlisle. Now, Army schools back then were unlike Army schools today, unlike even the branch schools. Uh, back then, the cavalry school was essentially the place to provide basic training for raw recruits, uh, how to mount a horse, how to uh, sheath your saber, how to fire on horseback, and a handful of officers, usually fresh out of West Point, would be assigned to duty at Carlisle Barracks for some on-the-job training of their own. And then when the enlistees were sufficiently trained, uh, one or another of those officers would take them out to join the regiments in the Indian frontier in Florida or out in, in the West or to the Mexican border. And I think it's important to remember, too, that um, 
many of these Confederate officers and soldiers that are riding with Jeb Stuart had spent a good deal of time here in Carlisle prior to the war. At least one of his regimental colonels was a student. Um, uh, many others had either, you know, taught here or were students here. So by the time they pulled up reins in Carlisle, you know, late on July 1st, and we're kind of skipping ahead just a, a bit, but it kind of gives some background, you know, to the, um, probably the mentality of, of a lot of these Southern soldiers. Uh, by the time they came into Carlisle, I'm sure immediately in their thoughts was the affinity that many of these Confederate officers and soldiers had for the barracks, for Carlisle itself, the people that they knew here. Um, you know, you couldn't be a student here without interacting with the people in Carlisle. And we have a lot of reminiscences of many of Jeb Stewart's troopers who just for their few hours that they spent here in Carlisle, their thoughts were filled with, you know, really their love for this area it was such an important place in their training. Uh, militarily, you know, we're talking the 1840s and 1850s. And here they are coming back to, you know, imagine, I guess, going back to your old alumnus, your, your old college or your old university, and then having to siege it, having to bomb it, <laughs> you know, because our orders are, uh, that's what we're going to do unless this town surrenders. And that's why I think a lot of these officers spent more time writing about their affinity and their love for Carlisle and their barracks and their experience here than they did um, July 1st and 2nd writing about you know, what they did here as far as the siege. It's quite interesting, it really is. Jeb Stewart himself had not been assigned to the cavalry school because the U.S. Army was being expanded right when he graduated from West Point. And so he was sent immediately uh, to the Regiment of Mounted Rifles and then transferred to the new 1st uh, U.S. Cavalry. But Fitz Lee, one of his brigade commanders, John Chambliss, another brigade commander, had been assigned here. And from the earlier Confederate occupation of Carlisle, which we'll also talk about, General Ewell himself, the Confederate uh, Corps commander, and one of his brigadiers, Alfred Iverson, had been assigned to Carlisle Barracks in the uh, Ewell in the 1840 and Iverson in the 1850s. Could we talk a little bit about Jeb Stewart? His name seems to be coming up a lot so far. It will continue. So who was he? Why was he so important? Well, when I think of Jeb Stewart, um, one of the things that I try to do is, is look at the writings and the things who people who knew them uh, left because everybody can write a, an autobiography and many times they're self-serving. Obviously, Jeb Stewart didn't live long enough to, to write an autobiography, but there are two things that I think of that were left and said about Jeb Stewart by a couple of people who were closest to him or, or knew him the best. And the first is something that um, Robert E. Lee said about Jeb Stewart. Once he got word that uh, Jeb had died of a mortal wound on May the 12th, 1864, after uh, being wounded at the Battle of Yellow Tavern. And Robert E. Lee was standing with a couple of his staff officers when he received a missive from a courier that Jeb Stewart had passed away. And we have a recollection from one of the staff officers that Robert E. Lee read the missive, looked up, got somber faced, began to fold it, and then told his staff officers that Jeb Stewart had passed away of his wounds. And then he said one single sentence, um, which I think really stands out. He said, Jeb Stewart never brought me a false piece of information. It's as if Robert E. Lee somehow had that uncanny ability to, to sum up someone's life in a single sentence, which tells a lot 
just in that sentence about how Robert E. Lee felt about Jeb Stewart. They really had a father-son relationship, and uh, Robert E. Lee saw the embodiment of his cavalry, the eyes and ears of his army, in Jeb Stewart personally. The second thing that I think of is uh, from a, a northern cavalry officer, Brigadier General David Gray, who met Jeb Stewart on the battlefield more than once. Um, and found him to be a worthy adversary and vice versa. But uh, David Gregg said about Jeb Stewart that he was the greatest cavalryman ever fold in North America. Fold uh, in the sense of a, of a horse being born, a colt being born. Greatest cavalryman ever. And David Gregg was able to size up cavalrymen. He was, he was definitely a no-nonsense, um, kind of like a John Buford sort of cavalryman. Uh, and, and he is saying this about a Jeb Stewart, who was kind of the opposite, very flamboyant. Jeb Stewart wore a red satin cape and a hat with a big black ostrich plume in it, and everybody could see him from a mile away. And I think it was part of his persona that uh, Jeb Stewart wanted to be known as the officer who was here with you and for you and stand his ground. And many times he was out in the front and exposed himself to fire dozens of times <clears throat> during the Civil War. Uh, but, of course, he was, he was a graduate of West Point. Um, it's important to, to remember that when the Civil War breaks out, Jeb Stewart is only 28 or 29 years old. He's actually a young fella, so he's in his young 30s uh, when he dies of that mortal wound in 1864. But by the time we get to the summer of 1863, for the better part of a year now, Jeb Stewart is a living legend in the South. Yeah. And, and J.D., you've expressed uh, so well uh, his qualities as an officer and a man. Let me just compliment the organizationally. He began the Civil War as colonel of the 1st Virginia Cavalry, rose to command uh, the Cavalry Brigade of the Army of Northern Virginia, and then was commanding the Cavalry Division of that army uh, throughout General Lee's tenure. Uh, it's important to remember that going into the Gettysburg campaign, Stewart's force is only one division. It has five brigades. There are two other mounted brigades at Lee's disposal. One of them, Jenkins Brigade, will come under Stewart's command on July 2nd when Stewart rejoins the army after the raid. Imboden's brigade will not really come under Stewart's operational control until the final fighting at the recrossings of the Potomac in mid-July. But to control even five, let alone seven brigades of horsemen, Stewart has only a divisional command structure. It really was a core in terms of manpower, but only a division in terms of strength. Not until September 1863 would the mounted arm of the Army of Northern Virginia be reorganized as a corps. And this has very practical consequences because it means that every one of the brigade commanders report directly to Stuart. There is no official structured divisional subordinate below him. And this will have a very important uh, impact on the use or misuse of the mounted arm during the, the Gettysburg campaign. Could we talk about what Jeb Stewart does in Pennsylvania in relation to the rest of Lee's army? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, as I said before, he was, he was given quite a number of tasks to complete here in Pennsylvania. Uh, he was to proceed um, 
uh, in, from Rector's Crossroads uh, starting out on uh, June the 25th, so this is about six days or so before the battle's gonna break out here in Pennsylvania at Gettysburg. Uh, he is to stay on the right of General Richard Yule's Corps, sort of feeling his right and protecting his right. By that end, Yule is to proceed east of the mountains into Pennsylvania. He ends up proceeding part of the way west of the mountains, and this does not make Jeb Stewart's responsibility or his task any easier, much more difficult. Uh, he is ordered to do as much damage as he can to northern war material and resources, and also by that we're going to have collateral damage, so to speak, you know, amongst the, the citizenry, but he's ordered to do as much damage as he can to collect as many supplies for the use of the army as he can when he gets into Pennsylvania, uh, and then rejoin the Confederate Army, AKA Yule's Corps, somewhere in Pennsylvania, possibly around York, around Harrisburg, uh, and, and to do all this in a 200-mile march while basically living off the land as best he can. And uh, as I mentioned before, when we go back 150 years and you look at the, the sheer logistics of this, it's, it's amazing that they did get here at all, to be honest, you know, and, and to make it on the Gettysburg battlefield by July 2nd. Jeb Stewart will later complain in his official battle report of the Gettysburg campaign that once he gets into Pennsylvania and Jeb Stewart gets uh, tangled on June the 30th with federal cavalry at Hanover, Pennsylvania in an all-day pitched battle lasts about 10 or 12 hours. When Yule is just north of him about 10 miles away and one of his division commanders, Jubal Early, hears Jeb Stewart's guns or what sounds like artillery in the area of Hanover, never makes any effort whatsoever to contact Jeb Stewart or find out who's there. Obviously, the two sides are fighting. Somebody is fighting in the Hanover area, uh, but neither Yule nor Early make any effort to try to find out what it is or to hook up with Jeb Stewart. So Jeb Stewart is left at the end of June 30th to break off from Kilpatrick's Federal Cavalry Division at Hanover and then go further to the east and then try to get north to get in the area of York um, and Carlisle while avoiding any more federal cavalry. By that time, June the 30th, for the previous five days, he had already been delayed by skirmish after skirmish and a couple of pitched battles. Um, tries to make his way north, and he's, he's interviewing civilians, he's getting as many newspapers as he can, he's trying to find any information about where any portions of the Confederate Army are in South Central Pennsylvania, if at all. By the time he does get information that Yule has been in the York area, it's already five or six days old. When uh, Stewart then starts heading north and then trying to, to find any elements in the Confederate Army to hook up with, they're already gone. So he decides to make his way toward Carlisle. So he has just spent the last three or four days in pitch battles and skirmishes trying to accomplish his, his ends to, to meet up with friendly troops of whatever possible type and he's always missing them. It's like a never-ending nightmare that just keeps you know, going on and on. And, and in addition to that, he's dealing with a, a large wagon train, about 125 wagons that he captured at Rockville, Maryland, outside of Washington, D.C., that has been slowing down his progress. Um, the logistics of it is just mind-boggling when you look at these troopers and what they tried to do on no food, very little water, spotty forage for the horses, they're literally falling asleep in the saddle, 
Um, their comrades would laugh at them when they hit the, fall asleep in the saddle and hit the road, and they got to pick themselves back up. These guys have gone for 10 days with no sleep um, and 100 miles into enemy territory. And like I said, it just boggles the mind when you think of what they had to do and what they went through. Whenever he gets to Carlisle, is Carlisle in a defensible position? Is there Union troops here in the city? Let, let me speak to that. The overall Confederate advance from the Fredericksburg area northward broke through the outer shell of federal defenses at the Second Battle of Winchester, the First Battle of Stevenson's Depot, June 13th to 15th, 1863. Once the Confederates broke through that, there was really no existing force to stop them. Uh, in Pennsylvania proper, there was a provisional company of cavalry recruits here at Carlisle Barracks. There was a company of walking wounded and convalescents in the York Military Hospital. That was it. They were penetrating a strategic void, especially Ewell's Corps and uh, Jenkins' uh, Cavalry Brigade, which was attached to that corps. The Army of the Potomac had been down at Falmouth opposite uh, Fredericksburg and moved back north through Dumfries and Fairfax and Leesburg, would not cross the Potomac until June 25th, 27th to the, the area of, of Frederick, Maryland. So the Confederates have really gotten north of the Yankees in this operation. We know that the Army of the Potomac is coming up after the Greycoats, but who can head them off? General Couch, uh, who was a veteran of distinguished service in the Army of the Potomac, was sent to take command the new department of the Susquehanna. He persuades Governor Curtin to issue a call for volunteer troops to serve in Pennsylvania for the duration of the war, just home guards. Nobody responds. President Lincoln issues a call for 100,000 six-month volunteers, half of whom are to come from Pennsylvania. Barely 5,000 men enlist under that, and most of them aren't mustered in until mid-July or even August after the crisis has passed. So then one turns to the militia. Now, the essence of American military manpower policy since the founding of the United States was based on the model of the ancient Roman Republic, the virtuous citizens who would take up arms in time of danger to protect the country. And the militia laws of the United States required every able-bodied white male between the ages of 18 and 35 to serve in the militia, with a few exceptions for conscientious objectors and so on. When the Indian frontier was just over North Mountain uh, out here in, in Perry County and, and the danger was clear and present, that militia system was viable. But as the Indian frontier had receded out onto the Great Plains, as the threat from uh, England uh, appeared uh, not to be particularly alarming, the militia system throughout most of the United States had atrophied. In theory, Pennsylvania had 300,000 militiamen in 20 divisions as of the last muster, which was in 1858. 
In reality, they had only two regiments. They had 20 division commanders, but they could field only two regiments of militia. So Pennsylvania had to create its militia anew. It created about 7,500 uh, men to go into United States service as militia and about uh, 24,000 men to go into state service as militia. Uh, the first group uh, actually was in the field by late June, but only one regiment of state militia was in the field by the time that the, the crisis of the Gettysburg campaign peaked. So Pennsylvania is not well able to protect itself. Thank goodness for New York. New York and Massachusetts were the only two states that maintained a viable militia system consisting of not only colonels and generals, but of corporals and privates. Four times during the Civil War, in the initial outbreak of the war, during the Stonewall Jackson Scare in May of 1862, the Jubal Early Scare in July of 1864, and most importantly, right here, uh, during the Gettysburg Campaign, New York sent its National Guard into the field. 14,000 fighting men plus 2,000 volunteers. Most of them came here to Pennsylvania. Um, eight regiments went to Baltimore, one to Washington, D.C. But the greatest number were here in the Commonwealth, and most of them were concentrated uh, uh, to protect Harrisburg. And with them came their generals. This was unheard of in the Civil War. Both President Abraham Lincoln and President Jefferson Davis jealously guarded the presidential prerogatives of appointing general officers. They allowed states to raise troops, commission officers up to the grade of colonel, but the appointment of generals was a presidential responsibility. Yet so dire was the crisis that President Lincoln uh, did not insist upon that consideration but he accepted six brigade headquarters, including five brigadier generals of the New York National Guard, one of whom, General John Ewan, would command uh, the troops, uh, a brigade of troops here under General Smith during the Battle of Carlisle. Now, most of these troops that were concentrated around Harrisburg formed the first division of the Department of the Susquehanna under General William F. Smith. And two brigades of that division would uh, participate in the uh, skirmishing and the fighting on the what we call the, the West Shore, the area uh, just to the right bank of the Susquehanna, uh, near where Camp Hill stands today. Camp Hill didn't exist in 1863. Uh, uh, during the campaign, but it, it uh, was where the fighting occurred on June 28th, 29th, and 30th. By the morning of July 1st, the Confederates were gone from the West Shore. Where? Where had they gone? Smith has only two companies of cavalry, uh, one of a New York regiment that had escaped the disaster at 2nd Winchester and escorted uh, General Milroy's train uh, to safety and these provisional companies of recruits from Carlisle Barracks. He sends these horsemen out to scout for the Confederates, but he has to rely on infantry, like Robert E. Lee was relying on his infantry to try to find where the Yankees were 
at the end of June, early July of 63. So he sends two brigades westward from uh, the Oyster Point uh, area, uh, one going along the uh, Carlisle Harrisburg Pike, present day Route 11, the other uh, going along uh, what was elegantly named the Mud Road, uh, today uh, called Trindle Road, uh, towards Carlisle. And so these troops would be approaching Carlisle, not sure of what they would find. What they found were townsfolk delighted by the arrival of their deliverers. The Confederates had pulled out of Carlisle, General Ewell, on the morning of June 30th, and uh, General Jenkins had passed through uh, Carlisle overnight of June 30th and July 1st. But now here on the afternoon of July 1st, the troops that are arriving are federal forces, a brigade of New York National Guardsmen, a brigade of Pennsylvania militia, a battery of Philadelphia militia, not even state militia, but city militia, uh, coming from the West Shore to deliver Carlisle. So these were the troops that were coming into the city at, at this period. So we have two forces coming together here at Carlisle, one in waiting. Take us through the battle on July 1st. And the federal forces came into town along the uh, Trindle Road, which is High Street, the east-west street right behind us, and the Harrisburg-Carlisle Pike, which is Hanover Street, the north-south street also just behind us. They were greeted here on the town square by the, the townsfolk and in the market house, which stands just across from this historic old courthouse where the new courthouse now stands. The, that was the site of the, the market house. The soldiers were treated to uh, uh, meals and, and water and, and milk by, their, um, by the townspeople. The, the soldiers were exhausted. They, they were not experienced soldiers. The Pennsylvanians were totally raw. The New Yorkers had seen a little service, at least had been in, in uniform in 1862, but they also were tired and they were grateful to have uh, this meal. There were some reports that the Confederates might be coming back up the Baltimore Pike, which is Hanover Street going south, present day Route 34 and 94. And so that was the route on which General Ewell had left town on June 30th. So General Ewan took the 22nd New York National Guard, one section of Battery A of the uh, Philadelphia Light Artillery, and moved south to a high ridge of ground, uh, which I think is the site overlooking the present Carlisle uh, country market, where he thought he had a good blocking force. But he didn't realize that the approaching Confederates were not coming up the Baltimore Pike, but up the York Carlisle Road, present day Route 74. That's how Stewart was approaching from Dover. He had left Wade Hampton at Dillsburg, the key intersection of the Carlisle York Road with the Harrisburg Gettysburg Road. Uh, Colonel Nye, in his epic study of the campaign, uh, plausibly surmises that Chanton Bliss's brigade was probably left at Brantsville where uh, the York Road uh, crosses Yellow Breaches Creek, although at least one of Chambliss's regiments uh, would fight at Carlisle, the 9th Virginia Cavalry. And with Fitz Lee's brigade and the six uh, pieces of horse artillery, 
Stewart proceeds on to Carlisle. He's totally passed around into the left rear of Ewan's blocking force, and he emerges where York Road turns into um, East High Street on the late afternoon of the 1st of July. The Confederates are astonished to find that Yule is no longer in town. Uh, still, they have not managed to link up with Confederate forces, but instead there are Yankees downtown. So Fitz Lee sends in a demand to surrender the town. The Federal General William F. Smith, who is a regular army officer and a brigadier general of volunteers assigned to command this division, a very experienced uh, soldier, uh, refuses the demand. And so the Confederates began shelling the town. They unlimber their guns probably about where the Taco Bell restaurant now stands. They were all open fields in those days. The, the Latorte Creek marked the eastern limits of Carlisle, and there was virtually nothing east of there except for the city gas works and, and a lumber yard, otherwise farm, farm fields, a, a small canal uh, along the, uh, the Latorte Creek. Stuart's art, horse artillery unlimbers there, facing west down High Street. The Philadelphia Militia Battery unlimbers here on the town square with two guns facing eastward down High Street, two guns facing northward back up Hanover Street. General Ewan comes back with the 22nd New York National Guard and the two guns with him back into town. I surmise that he probably occupied the rise of ground that crosses South High Street just below South Street. Militarily, it's a good defensible crest right on the border of town. And the old town cemetery with its pre-existing stone walls provided a ready-made redoubt for anchoring the southeastern salient of Smith's Line. Uh, local home guards spread out as skirmishers along East Street and the main federal force with Colonel Brisbane on the left uh, General, uh, with his four Pennsylvania regiments, General Smith in the center with the 37th New York National Guard and a battalion of the 12th New York National Guard, which had been perched up in Sterrett's Gap and had seen Smith advancing westward and had come down to join him. Uh, they're holding the center right across High Street. And General Ewan is down on the South Hanover Street. So here you have the forces deployed all ready for battle, except for one thing, neither side wants a battle. Stuart did not come here to fight. As J.D. has pointed out so well, the Confederate troopers were exhausted. They were hoping to finally make connection with Ewell, didn't want to fight a battle. The, the Federals in town, except for Smith himself and two of his staff officers, are completely inexperienced. They will fight if they have to, to defend the town, but they're not going to uh, go out and counterattack and, and try to take on the Southerners. So the, the battle 
becomes essentially skirmishing and shelling of the town. The, the Philadelphians actually shoot quite well. Uh, they only fire three shots before Smith orders them to hold their fire, but it causes the Jeb Stuart horse artillery to limber up <clears throat> and fall back to high ground. Now there's a very conspicuous ridge across East High Street. I do not think that Stuart fell back that far, because if he had, his guns would have been hard pressed to uh, hit the old courthouse here, the First Presbyterian Church across the street. Yet to this day, those two buildings still bear honorable battle scars of the Confederate shelling. And surely from that far east, the Virginians could not have hit the train station, which is a block to the west of us here, or Dickinson College, which is two blocks to the west, or the freight station, which is further west uh, from Dickinson. Yet we know all of those areas were hit. So the, con, where the Confederates fell back to, I think, was near what is today the Pizza Hut. Present day um, buildings totally obscure the field of fire. But if you look at a topographical survey map, you'll see there's high ground just north of the Pizza Hut. And if you drive up there, surely there is high ground. And if the frog switch plant were not in the way, uh, artillery there would have had a good range uh, of the town for the shelling. Uh, that's setting the context of the battle. J.D., you've done a lot of work on this, I well, know. Well, I was gonna say there, there are some very interesting stories that come out of um, Jeb Stewart's demand for Carlisle to surrender, too. When Fitz Lee sends in uh, the first request, he does it with his younger brother, Lieutenant Henry Lee. And Henry Lee comes in to Baldy Smith, Baldy, uh, a nickname that I can uh, identify with. Me too. <laughs> so when he comes into Baldy Smith's headquarters <clears throat> with a flag of truce, he has this, uh, Henry Lee has this large one third bedsheet sized white flag that he comes carrying in with this surrender demand. Uh, he comes up to General Smith and informs him that Jeb Stewart wants him to surrender the town or he's going to bomb away at it with his artillery. And while Smith is sitting there taking all this in, one of the old local women, uh, Polly McGuire, I think, or, or, or something like that. McGinnis? McGinnis, Polly McGinnis, yes, who is um, cooking some food and making some coffee for General Smith and his staff, starts patting him on the back and says, don't do it, General, don't do it, don't surrender. Uh, don't surrender, let them do whatever they want to the town as long as one brick stands upon another. And General Smith, so he looks at Henry Lee straight in the eyes and says to him, I quote, and shell away and be damned. And that's the message that Henry Lee has to take back to Fitz Lee and, of course, Jeb Stewart. And that first shelling begins, which, you know, maybe lasts about a half hour to 45 minutes. The shelling here at Carlisle is going to be a total of, depending on the reports and so forth, maybe a total of three and a half hours, you know, four hours we're talking about. 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night and perhaps lasting till probably 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the morning, you know, all times being relevant, um, but very sporadic. And um, that's one of the interesting stories, one of the, one of the quotes that comes out of it. When a second flag of truce is sent in after this initial shelling, 
Apparently, the only, the only reminiscence that we have of what Smith's answer was then, it was even more colorful than the first. I wish somebody would have recorded it and written it down, because I'm sure it was probably one for the ages. Uh, we don't have it, but anyway, Smith, as Dr. Summers said, refuses again. The shelling starts again. Uh, there's damage to several buildings in town. Of course, the courthouse, as the doctor said. Uh, and at some point during this second shelling, the Carlisle Barracks is fired, a lot of wooden buildings there. And between that and the local gas works that are also lit on fire by Jeb Stewart's men, this was a, a literal inferno that people could see for miles around. In fact, one of the messengers that Jeb Stewart sends out to try to find Robert E. Lee in the Confederate Army, when they eventually do come back with word from Robert E. Lee that a battle is underway at Gettysburg and to get there with all haste, they actually use the fires that they can see here for the last several miles as basically a beacon to find out where Jeb Stewart is. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'd like to uh, build on uh, what you so well pointed out, J.D., about Carlisle Barracks. Now, Stewart is shelling the town. He is not shelling the post. Carlisle Barracks is outside Smith's defense perimeter. Smith is defending only the town itself. Uh, Carlisle Barracks in those days uh, was approachable on East Lowther Street. North Street did not extend east of the Latorte Creek. And then one would go up Garrison Lane, and even today you can see a street in town called Garrison Lane, which was the main entrance to Carlisle Barracks uh, throughout the cavalry school period. Smith had parked his wagons at Carlisle Barracks, and there were a few uh, teamsters and wagoneers still with the wagons. But there was no defense force there because uh, Captain Hastings had abandoned the post on um, the uh, 25th of, of June when General Knipe had uh, fallen back before Ewell's advance. Uh, so S Stewart is out uh, at approximately where the Taco Bell is today, facing westward. He extends his right flank, the 4th Virginia Cavalry under Colonel Williams Wickham, northward and occupies Carlisle Barracks without resistance. He captures the few wagoneers who were there. He burns the wagons. There are 11 buildings on post. Two officers' quarters, two enlisted quarters, recruits' quarters, the commandant's quarters, the adjutant's quarters, the guardhouse, and some supply buildings. The stone guardhouse, which had been constructed during the Revolutionary War, is too difficult to destroy. So he leaves it, it remains standing to this day as the post uh, museum for Carlisle Barracks. Fitz Lee was a friend of the post adjutant, Lieutenant Thomas McGregor, so he spares the adjutant's quarters. For some reason not readily apparent, he spares the two supply buildings. He burns the commandant's quarters, the officers' enlisted quarters, and the stables. Uh, this is not an act of vandalism. Uh, this is a legitimate act of war against an enemy military installation. The United States and the Confederate States were at war. Carlisle Barracks was a U.S. Army post, and so Stuart is destroying uh, a, an enemy installation. Uh, some of the um, ruins of the uh, officers' quarters uh, 
were salvaged, the brick walls, when uh, reconstruction of the post began later in 1863, but they were themselves destroyed in another fire in the, uh, the 1920s. And uh, on their site today uh, stand the historic uh, tennis courts. But um, the other officers quartered on post that was rebuilt, the, the building currently there today, the Corrin Apartments, is very similar to how the officers' quarters would have appeared in, in 1863. If there's one takeaway from this battle, um, with all the battles of the Civil War, what would you say is the most vital component of the Battle of Carlisle in the big picture? Despite all the hardships and the ordeal, the soldiers still do their duty. They still try to gain something out of it, to try to, to overawe the town into surrendering. And yet the defenders of the town, inexperienced though they are, are willing to fight back to protect what is important to them. It underscores the humanity of war. A lot of Stuart's troopers were sleeping during the bombardment. It was so, it was so exhausting, and yet they had traveled all the way to Carlisle, had done their duty here, and would ride back south through Boiling Springs and the old York Road and down the Holly Pike and on down through Petersburg or York Springs as we call it today at Gettysburg and would fight there very hard on July 3rd. Does the Battle of Carlisle change the course of the Civil War? No. Does the Battle of Carlisle change the course of the Gettysburg Campaign? Not really. Does the Battle of Carlisle serve as an example of heroism, courage, fortitude, determination in the face of adversity? Yes. And thus it underscores the humanity of the military experience. There's a handsome monument right behind me. Gettysburg is full of statues in marble and bronze. But it's not men in marble and bronze. It's real live men in flesh and blood that fight in war. And some such men from Pennsylvania, from New York, from Virginia were fighting right here in the Battle of Carlisle on July 1st, 1863. It's unbelievable when we think today, if we got to go a mile to the store, we hop in the car. Uh, what these fellows had to do in trying to get sleep, you know, whenever they could is just unbelievable. Carlisle is kind of the cap on it before we get to the main Gettysburg battlefield. So there, I think it has a very special place of showing sort of the pinnacle of that frustration of Jeb Stewart's 10-day ride and then what happens when he finally gets to Gettysburg. On that note, I'd like to thank my guests for joining us today. As always, if you have questions about today's episode or recommendations for future episodes, please visit our website at PCNTV.com. For everybody here at Battlefield, Pennsylvania, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.